When you think of a good dad, don't you think of the guy who says his kids are good for nothing and turns his back on them after they make a series of mistakes? And when you hand out the Father of the Year award, wouldn't you just hand it to the fellow who tells his kid he'd love him or her more if they were more like their siblings? No? No. Of course not. These are the complete opposites of what it means to be a good father. Sadly, some of us have had such fathers in our lives. Others of us have had good fathers, not perfect fathers, but the kind of fathers who have manifested some of the virtues of fatherhood over their lifetime. Specifically, and most simply, we're talking about the fathers who just love and show their love to their kids. American society would be radically transformed if it was filled with such fathers. Without them, either because they are absent and or immoral, many children don't grow up into the adults they ought to be. We need the influence of good fathers in our lives. In Jesus Christ, God the Father becomes our Father. We have been adopted to be shaped in His image. In Matthew 18, Jesus has been challenging us to see things from the Father's perspective. Those disciples who are least important in the world's estimation are most important in His eyes. Sin is no trifling thing, and all who lead others into sin and those who cling to sin will face judgment. Now after those, reverse, those verses reminding us of God's justice, it's easy to imagine God the Father as very stern, cold, and distant. But this is why we never just read one or two verses when we're trying to understand who God is. We read on. And in today's verses, we get a strikingly different picture of the Father than what we might have imagined. And it has big implications for us. So this morning, we're going to be picking up in chapter 18 of the Gospel of Matthew, verse 10. Matthew 18, 10. There the disciple Matthew records Jesus as saying, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that there are angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. 
Now, as we get into this passage, at the outset, I want to note something that some of you may have picked up on, depending on which version of the Bible that you have. I know, at least in the King James Version, and the New King James Version, includes a verse 11. Verse 11, in more modern translations, is excluded. And the reason for this is because the manuscript evidence, and when we're talking about manuscript evidence, we're talking about thousands of manuscripts that they have of the New Testament, ranging from those in very early on to you know, within a couple hundred years, and then some much further on, you know, 600, 800 years. Um, based on those manuscripts and their study of them, it appears that verse 11 was in addition to the text later on. That is, it's absent from the earliest manuscripts that they have access to. Um, And it appears that it's drawn from Luke 19.10, which says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, the absence of that verse from this passage doesn't really change all that much. Now, from the parable that Jesus tells about the sheep, it makes sense why that they, some of the scribes who copy these downs might have thought, like, oh, we should add that here. Um, but it's not necessary, because the Gospel of Luke tells us about Jesus, that this was um, his purpose and coming. And if you want more, if, you, if this is something that's kind of a question in your mind about all this manuscript stuff, I'd be happy to talk to you about it um, afterwards. Um, But all that to say, the absence of this doesn't change anything about our understanding of who Jesus is and what he's trying to communicate to us here. Um, And the association becomes even clearer as we go on. So Jesus starts off by talking again about little ones and saying that you should not despise these little ones. Now, who are these little ones? We've, We've been kind of talking about this Um, as we've been going through Matthew 18. The little ones are Jesus' disciples. Jesus says, don't despise these little ones. Don't despise these disciples. Why? Well, he says in the second part of verse 10, their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm reading through the Bible, and especially through the Gospels, I can kind of glaze over some verses because my eyes are really drawn to, like, the real substantial part, you know, this parable about the lost sheep. But let's just stop a second and see what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying that each of his disciples have an angel who is standing before the presence of the, fa- of the Heavenly Father. Now, if you're really familiar with scriptures, you'll understand that this isn't a completely foreign concept. When you go to the book of Daniel, it's indicated that each nation has an angel. When we go to the book of Revelation, we talk about the seven churches. Each of the churches have an angel. And angels have this... It comes from the word angelos in the Greek, which means, means messenger. And uh, in one sense, you have a one-way communication from God to man. You think about Gabriel going to Mary. He was going as a messenger to Mary. Um, but we could also think about 
them serving as messengers before God. Now, God knows all things, but the idea here is, is that they're acting as representatives of Christ's disciples in the presence of the Heavenly Father. Now, we see at the individual level in the book of Acts, there it's recorded about how Peter was in prison and he was released from prison by an angel. And uh, he goes to this house where some of the disciples were praying for him. And this young woman, Rhoda, uh, goes to the door and opens the door. She says, Peter, shuts the door because she's so in shock and excited and goes back and tells the other disciples, hey, Peter's here. And in, in Acts 12, 15, they say, you're out of your mind. Um, but when she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. Now, it wasn't his angel. It was actually Peter. But they're reflecting, again, this understanding that Peter could act, would actually have a personal angel. When we go to the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 1.14, it says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Who's to inherit salvation? It's us. Those who are the disciples of Christ. And so, angels are, are ministering spirits. They're servants acting on our behalf. Now, we don't know a whole lot about them beyond this and what they do you know, on a day-to-day basis in relation to us. Um, it's indicated that, you know, they're ministering, so they serve, they protect. Um, but I don't think God's inviting us to pay too much attention to them because he doesn't want us to get distracted by them. Um, but what's made clear by what Jesus is saying here is that they do stand before the presence of the Father. Now, this is different than Christ's mediation on our behalf. Um, Christ is the one mediator between God and man. In that sense, he's standing as our high priest. He's the only one that can cover for sins. Angels cannot do that. We're we're still in a real tough spot if we don't have Jesus. Um, But the main point that Jesus is trying to make here is the care of the Father for his disciples. In that, he welcomes their, their angels into his presence so that their needs are always before them. He's interested in their fate. He's not like, oh, that's just some small person. I don't care about them. No. No. God cares about us collectively. He cares about his church collectively. But he also cares about each one of us individually, just as a father cares for his children. Now, why might someone despise a disciple of Jesus? Well, it appears from what follows that It may be because um, some of the disciples may have just recently been pulled out of the gutter, or maybe some of the disciples have started to kind of go off the beaten path a little bit. Might not be quite up to snuff. Now, this impression um, becomes stronger um, because of a similar use of the parable of the sheep that's found in Luke 15. 1 through 7, and we're going to also read verse 10. And it says there that Jesus um, was uh, with some tax collectors and sinners. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
Then Jesus told this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So, in this passage in Matthew, Jesus is talking about little ones. In the passage in Luke, he's talking about the one sinner who repents. So he's using the same parable in slightly different contexts. There's a bit of a distinction here because in the context of Luke, he's talking about kind of the first call to go follow Jesus. Someone who's, who's a sinner and who's first found by Jesus and who's brought into his flock. Um, but in the, the, his use of the imagery here in Matthew is about those who are already his disciples but who may wander. Now we know from what we've already just talked about in the previous verses that God takes sin seriously. So seriously that, he says, that Jesus says, it's better to pluck your eye out. It's better to cut off the arm than to be uh, continuing in your sin and be cast into hell. Now, when we think about a disciple who's caught in sin, we think maybe perhaps that God will just cut him off now. Maybe he's like, okay, you're, you're good for nothing. I don't want anything to do with you. And sadly, this is how some Christians treat their fellow Christians who are caught up in sin. Um, some of us kind of have this attitude of despising them, where as soon as someone gets off track, we're like, that's it. They're no good. And it's easy, I think, for us who are Christians, um, who have been Christians longer in the faith, who have been brought up in the church our whole lives, to kind of look down on those who have more recently come to the faith and seem to be struggling. I'm not saying that we do that, but I'm saying it's easier for us to do that. Um, because what has come more easily to us because of the God, way in which God has blessed us by putting us in a church family and working on us for years and years and years, we can kind of tend to forget just how much work God has had to put into us. And we forget that we too are sinners saved by grace. At the same time too though, I think any Christian at any stage can um, be susceptible to this, especially those who are very zealous for the faith, who know what is true and right and uh, want others to get on track. And so in their zeal, some, some of us might be like, away with him or her. You know, they're, they're just a fake Christian. Well, Jesus indicates here is that that's a huge misstep. Because the Father loves these wandering little ones just as much as the rest. He welcomes their angels into his presence. And what we see in the verses that follow is Jesus' parable of the sheep that's gone astray. 
So you, he uses this imagery of a shepherd that's got 100 sheep. It's not quite 100, but it's enough to serve as a representative example. And uh, one of them goes astray. So now the shepherd only has 99 sheep. And maybe kind of in our 21st century minds, we, we think, oh, you know, it's just one sheep. Just, uh, stick, just stick with your 99. Don't kill yourself over trying to get the one. But Jesus is using this parable because it's supposed to be obvious to his audience that the person would go to great lengths to try to recover the sheep. Because the one sheep, in the estimation of the shepherd, is of great worth. And so the shepherd would go out searching for the sheep, going over all the hills and everything, until he finally finds the sheep and is able to bring it home. And Jesus says that the shepherd, in fact, will rejoice all the more greatly for the sheep that is recovered than the 99 who are already righteous and who are okay. I was just thinking a little bit about, you know, in my own life where I've seen this demonstrated, and I've thought about uh, Nick, one of our, bro- our brothers in Christ who lives across the street. He's got a lot of rabbits, I tell you. If you need a rabbit, go talk to him. Um, but one of his little rabbits uh, was kind of rejected by uh, the mother. And it was several weeks ago, he was posting up pictures on Facebook. You see him, he had like this little rabbit in his pocket, and he's walking around with this little rabbit. And this, he cares so much for this little rabbit, even though it's just a rabbit. And I was just thinking about you know, that's a really good kind of familiar image of the way in which God loves us. God loves us so much that he's going to draw, he wants to draw us to himself, carry us in his pocket. He wants to restore us. What Jesus is reminding his audience of here is God's care for the one. Yes, he loves He loves all of his sheep. He loves them collectively, but he also loves each one of us individually. And we're supposed to follow God's example in loving each other in that kind of way. We shouldn't have this attitude like, eh, we can do without Barb or Jack or Susie or Joe. Now, it's easy for us to think like that. Like, sometimes, like... When you, especially when you have people who are kind of going in and out of the church, you can start thinking like, okay, it'd be really bad if we lost that person. They went away. This person wouldn't be that big of a deal. That's not the way that God looks at it. The Father cares about every single person. Our judgments are not what matters. What his, his judgment is what matters. What this reminds us of is that our true worth is found in the love of the Father. We gain our worth outside of ourselves. And this is a little bit different than intrinsic worth because when you think about things that everybody wants, everybody wants a $100 bill. That'd be nice. Buy yourself some gas. (laughs) (laughs) Not everyone wants Raffi, my son's stuffed giraffe. In the eyes of the world, the stuffed giraffe isn't worth anything. But for my son, it's priceless. 
He'd pay you $100. He'd empty out his piggy bank to get his wrath back if he lost it. The Father does not love us because in and of ourselves we are of great worth. We are of great worth because he loves us, because he has chosen us. Now what Jesus is trying to drive us to is verse 14, where he says, In the same way your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. God's not willing to lose those who belong to him. He's not going to spare any of them. He wants every single one of them. Jesus says this again and again in the Gospels. In John 6, 39, he says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. So again, as I said in communion, we see this, this sharing between the Father and the Son, and the Spirit's working in all this as well, is that those who belong to the Son belong to the Father. Those who belong to the Father belong to the Son. And any have been, been given to the Son, they will not be lost. Now here it's talking about, even in the face of death, that even death cannot take us away from God, but that we will be raised up on the last day. When you go a few chapters over in John, John 10, 27 through 28, uh, the imagery of sheep is brought back up. Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. If someone belongs to Jesus Christ, if they are one of his sheep, we have the assurance that no one will be able to take them away from him. Now, this doesn't mean that a sheep doesn't go astray. It doesn't mean that they never wander off course. Because we know that happens. Some of us have experienced that personally in our own lives. I know there was a point in my life, like right after I got baptized, the next few years, I was very much astray. But out of God's great love, he brings us back to himself. Now, Jesus makes it clear that there are plenty who are not sheep. In John 10, again, verses 24 through 26, he says, The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. So they're like, just prove it to us, show it to us. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Now we have to confess that this is a bit of a mystery. We don't completely understand God's work of election and drawing people to himself. But what Jesus is making clear is that it's by the hand of God drawing people to himself, identifying them as this is going to this is one of the sheep of the shepherd. This person belongs to Christ. It's by him working through the Spirit on a person, regenerating their heart, that we're able to respond. Otherwise, we're just like the rest of the Jews that are saying, Jesus, prove it. Prove it more. We, don't, we need more. We, need, we won't believe until you show us more. And Jesus is saying, I've shown you everything. The problem's not me. The problem's you. 
Now, John, in one of his letters, makes it clear that there can't even be those who come into our midst who first appeared to be one of the sheep, but in fact not. 1 John 2, verses 18 through 19. It says, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. So, talk about the end times, a lot of people think about the Antichrist. Well, there's also a lot of little Antichrists, too. A lot of people who, who come in, have, are kind of have this Christian facade, but are actually trying to utilize it to their own ends. John continues, he says, This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now, this is where we have to be careful. It's a, it's a real balance that we have to strike when we're trying to reach out to those who seem to be wandering. On the one hand, we might rush to conclude, like, oh, they're one of those antichrists. They, they never belong to us. Not necessarily the case. On the other hand, though, we might reach and reach and reach and reach and kind of live in denial, like, oh, that's not possible. I'm sure that they are a Christian. When, in fact, it may be the case that they never were, that they were never one of us. And Jesus doesn't leave us in a position where we don't know how to figure, how to navigate that situation. Um, in the verses that we'll get into next week, he actually lays out a deliberate process to bring back those wander off course. But the point this morning that we're finding in this passage is that those who wander to never return, that's not the fault of, of God. Because those who belong to God, those who are his sheep, are never left to wander off forever. They are drawn back to him because the Father will lose none who belong to him. So, stepping back and setting verse 10 and verse 14 alongside each other, we get a clear picture of what Jesus is saying in this passage. Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. We ask, why? And in addition to the fact that the angels are before the Father, Jesus says, Because your Father in heaven is not willing that any one of these little ones should perish. The disposition of the Father is our authoritative example. My assessment, your assessment of the worth of our fellow disciple means absolutely nothing. The Father's love is the measure of our worth. In these verses, we find a word of clearly spoken instruction and also a word of unspoken instruction. So the spoken instruction is, don't despise your fellow disciples. They are beloved by the Father, including those who previously wandered or have currently veered off course. The unspoken instruction, but which you can hear if you're paying attention to the text, is that Jesus is saying, do love your fellow disciples the way your Father loves them. 
Now, love is not cheap. Love is not easy. Love will take you over hill and dale pursuing the one that has wandered from the 99. Love entails a cost. On the other hand, despising others is easy. It's easy to just focus on yourself and not give a hoot about the brother or sister who wanders. It's easy to say, that's someone else's job to be concerned about them. That has nothing to do with me. I think part of the reason we do this is because we don't want to feel the hurt when someone we love wanders. We don't want to be vulnerable. On this point, C.S. Lewis has this to say. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. We cannot love like the Father and avoid vulnerability. The all-powerful God welcomed this kind of vulnerability when God the Son took on human nature, becoming one of us in the flesh. Jesus is the manifestation of the love of the shepherd. And this love led him to the cross. The love of the Father leads us to care for one another with all the disappointment, betrayal, and backsliding that comes along the way. And we love others in this way because we know we have been loved by him in the very same way. Even when we have disappointed him, betrayed him, and gone astray. Let's follow in the footsteps of our Father. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning as those who were once wretches whom you've made your treasure. Father, we're so thankful for your mercy that even while we were astray, that you brought us back to yourself through Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Father, our prayer this morning, as those who are members of the flock, as those who belong to you, is that we would not despise those who have recently been brought into the fold, who maybe have a lot of baggage, a lot of scars, Father, but that in seeing them receive grace, that we be reminded of the grace we ourselves have received. Likewise, Father, help us not to despise those who wander, who go astray. Help us to remember the way in which you love them. And help us to love them in the same way. 
to not give up on those who belong to you, but to pursue them in the same way that you've pursued us. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offer to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Scituate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Scituate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.